0: Lindsay Orbeda, thank you so much for making the time. Lindsay Orbeda is a registered dietitian and is a board certified, is board certified in sports dietetics. She works as an exercise physiologist at the University of California in San Francisco, where she performs human exercise testing for clinical research. A lifelong athlete, Lindsay was a collegiate swimmer, raced full length Ironmans, triathlons, and is now an avid surfer. She's also followed a strict ketogenic diet for the last two years and has launched her own podcast called The Keto Dietitian. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you so much for hanging out on a Sunday. I appreciate it.
1: I'm really honored, Alberto. Thanks for having me. Yeah.
0: Where where are you from, uh, Lindsay? I'm
1: from Southern Cali.
0: Southern California?
1: Yeah, and now... It, San Diego, yeah, it's where I went. It's like I'm an alumni of SDSU, but came to the Bay Area about 13 years ago.
0: Wow. Okay, Don't so, think not, I'll leave. okay. <laughs> so you grew up in San Diego, but live in, in, in the Bay Area?
1: Almost. Southern California is where I was born and raised, yeah, or Santa Barbara, but yeah, Southern California for up until college, and then and then I made my way to San Francisco, yeah.
0: That's awesome. You know, it's uh, we were talking about fasting and the uh, Ketogenic diets and something that that's really been a game changer for me, you know, because we, we you, you were kind enough to kind of really line up a lot of uh, subjects and things to discuss, you know, and it's really nice because we can hit so many points hopefully today. But, you know, something that has been a huge game changer for me personally has been fasting, like the intermittent fasting, you know, uh, I've been kind of listening to, you know, Scott Sonner for years who introduced us. Uh, and, you know, he says he doesn't eat after five o'clock and I forgot her name. She's on the Joe Rogan podcast a lot. Uh, she has been a few times, and I just started listening and trying things because I had, I had a lot of uh, inflammation. And so I just I stopped eating at a certain time, and I really made sure I, you know, I, I didn't eat for you know 12 to 15 hours and tried to eat within a time period, and it really reduced so much inflammation. Um, just you know, made you know made me like lose fat off my body and just trim down and just make it gave me more energy as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited to talk to you today.
1: Yeah, you know, let me ask you a little question there. What was the intention, or I should say, how did you measure that you had less inflammation? Like, how did you know?
0: Um, because I was really pressing on the gas pedal, and I just couldn't sustain my training. I, I was going to just break, basically. So and, fatigue. Uh, fatigue and just my joints, you know, I just have so many injuries mm-hmm. from, from fighting and stuff over the years uh, that I just I couldn't sustain it, you know, and so mm-hmm. My inflammation, my joints was the big thing, you know, like my elbows and my knees, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, and then really everything, really every joint, like my spine and everything. And so uh, after, after, you know, just the, the intermittent fasting, just fasting every day, and actually, you know, I, I, I would, twice a week, I'd go out to dinner, you know, on a Saturday and a Sunday, or Friday, I'm sorry, Friday and a Saturday, and I would do the, uh, and I would, it would be totally fine, you know, but I would definitely fast like five days a week, mm-hmm. and it would totally change my life. And so, so what, I, it,
1: what about muscle soreness? Did you feel that you saw a change in terms of soreness after training?
0: A, a Reduction in, in, a reduction soren- in soreness? Uh, I think so, I just overall, you know, I mean, I, all the stuff that I do with the, with the, with the TAC rate, like releasing of tension, like the stretching and all that, you know, mm-hmm. the compensation things, uh, I don't feel like I really get that sore anymore just because mm-hmm. I just end up stretching throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Until the soreness goes away, I release the tension. But uh, but the inflammation in my joints and just problems sleeping and all that, I ch- it changed everything, you know. And the mm-hmm. fasting, I attributed to the fasting.
1: Yeah, the, I feel like uh, intermittent fasting has gained a lot of traction recently. And I feel like the reason why is it's such a no-brainer. I just don't eat. <laughs> There's no secret to it. Just don't eat. <laughs> There's no special rule. You know, there are different types of fasting. But, yeah, I feel like it's something everyone can kind of grasp and uh, at least make attempt and see how, they, how their body responds. So it's just kind of like the low hanging fruit for a dietary intervention, you know?
0: You know, I was familiar when I was younger, I would, you know, you cut a lot of weight and you, you kind of really diet down. And I remember how clean you start to feel when you become super disciplined and you end up kind of eating less, right? And being mm-hmm. everything you can eat, it's like very like precise, you know? And you just feel like, and you just, you just feel great, you know? And then as soon as the the fight happens or whatever, and you stop, you you kind of, uh, what do you call it? Uh, You you start eating everything again, and then you become kind of sluggish again. And so I just remember that kind of a feeling. And so it's really, really nice just to kind of create a lifestyle out of that, rather than just training for having a fight, having a competition where you really diet your, you know, you really diet down. But this is like a, like kind of a way of life for me. it's really, like I said, like really helped me with my energy and my, my alertness and, mm-hmm. and just everything.
1: You know, one of the things you're describing there, and can you hear me okay, by the way? Can, yes. Oh, great, cool. Um, I think that when you approach that level of fasting, 15 to 16 hours, that's when people can really capitalize on autophagy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things that you're describing about kind of that just clean feeling or like a fine humming that you can't put your finger on, that's really where autophagy starts to kick in is around 16 hours of fasting. And so it's kind of a complex like, process of cellular degradation, but to put it more simply, it's just a body's way of like cleaning damaged cells to make way for newer, healthier cells. That's really what it is. And your body has a lot of metabolic processes it doesn't need to engage in. And so I think there are different reasons for doing fasting, but when you do it in the method that you're following, you would have that benefit of autophagy. And then that's different than other types of fasting, which would be like time-restricted eating, which is only from a certain window, right? So I work at UCSF, and one of the studies that we just wrapped we looked at time-restricted eating. They used an aura ring. They, we did all kinds of exercise and metabolic testing. And those subjects were only able to eat from a five-hour window in the evenings. So again, that might be different than, say, a 16-hour fast. So there are different ways of kind of approaching fasting and it really depends on what your goal is
0: yeah like you wrote fasting give a quick overview of the different types of fasting yeah so what what are the and what are the goals behind them so what are the different types of fasting
1: so as i just mentioned they can be anywhere you know 12 to 16 hours or even just overnight and i feel like most people already overnight fast right it's eight hours and that's why breakfast is called what it is it's breaking a fast Mm. so um the difference with again time restricted is it's only having energy coming into the system with a certain subset of hours, and that's very different than just um you know going sixteen hours at any point, like another example like a lot of studies look at Ramadan because as you know, people don't eat in, until it's what right. is it sundown to or sun up to sundown
0: right right right
1: right, so that's like kind of inherent fasting for a religious reason, and so a lot of studies look at look at Ramadan as an example but um
0: it's always I, interesting, right, when you look at these old traditions, why they did certain things. And yeah. we have Muslim like wrestlers and guys from the, those that are near the, near the Middle East, and those that kind of are caucuses. And uh, it's just super interesting. Like, There's a reason why they did these kinds of things, right?
1: Oh, yeah. No, most definitely. And again, now people are starting to kind of experiment with it. But I think with the purposes of um, fasting that I come across from most people, they're not really after the autophagy because they can't seem to like measure that, you know, they can't put a metric on it. Um, They're after the fat burning effect and that's really where it's at. And so I feel like a lot of the questions people have are around timing of meals Mm. and when they should fast relative to the exercise that they engage in. So that's really more, I think what people are confused about. And there's a lot of, um, kind of red tape around defining how and when is the best time to approach that.
0: Depends on your goals, right? What you want exactly. to get. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Me, it's definitely like performance, and yeah, you know, I mean for not now, it's definitely like just how I feel, the energy that I have throughout
1: right. the day. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and that's kind of like what readiness is, right? Right. Readiness to to exercise and to feel good when you go to start your workout. That's kind of all you need to know if you if you feel good or not. But I feel like um, in terms of like consuming a meal prior to exercise. That's like the main thing that people are unsure about. Can I ask you, like, I know you said you have 16 hours. So does that mean your first meal of the day is in the late afternoon?
0: Um, you know, actually, I do better with breakfast. Oh, okay. so I have, I have a, one of my really close friend, Black Belt. He actually does better eating um, dinner, like, late. you know, eating dinner and then mm-hmm. not eating until afternoon. But I really do better eating breakfast in the morning, like mm-hmm. having a big breakfast mm-hmm. and then not having dinner in the evening
1: so that 's interesting, and I feel like um, I have those questions too. like what if you just go a long period of time midday without eating? Does that change the benefit of that augmented fat burning? And the answer is it does. So maybe we could dive into that there's actually yeah. I looked at seven different studies because I was trying to find exercise protocols that could apply to everybody, from walking to like jogging to racing, just because they're all types of athletes or activities so yeah, do you want to dive into those?
0: I would love to. I would love to. Okay, all right. I'll try to, I'll try to keep up. And I'll ask, <laughs> if, I, I, if I don't understand the terminology, I'll just you know laugh on it. What that means?
1: Oh, that means I'm not doing my job. So I'll <laughs> try to try to keep it accessible. That's the goal, right? Um, so the first paper they actually looked at just walking, which is so easy. Most people are healthy enough to do that, and it was walking for an hour either before or after a standardized breakfast. So they're looking at first meal of the day. Mm and basically they were monitoring how much fat versus carbohydrate are people burning um, during the exercise the walking and after and so everyone fasted overnight they did a 12-hour fast
0: and then only the
1: group that ate the meal before they walked um, was found to have the the problem the blunted fat burning Mm. so what they found is that whole body like 24 hour fat burning and what they call that literature is oxidation. Oxidation is the burning of a fuel, right? So whole body fat burning was significantly higher only when walking was done, fasted. Hmm. If people had eaten breakfast prior to the walk, it really impaired the ability to burn fat during Mm -hmm. the walking. And in fact, for the rest of the day. So the difference was really due to what the change was in the fuel being used during the walking, not for the rest of the day. And this was cool because they actually followed people after they ate lunch and they were still able to measure energy expenditure. And they found that it was really attributed to what was happening during the walking. And all of the studies seem to support exactly that finding. So
0: so now, you know, eating, mm-hmm. eating, before, eating before you exercise or, or move. Blunts like the fat burning component.
1: Yes. And it doesn't mean that you don't burn fat at all. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that people who fast because they want a benefit of augmented increased fat burning, mm-hmm. they're not going to be able to take advantage of that if they eat before they exercise, specifically breakfast, first meal in the morning, we'll get into lunch and dinner. Cause I know you talked about your method is that you kind of need something in the morning yeah, and you have a long midday fast and you might do your training and then you'll go eat so that that's kind of down the road we'll we'll talk that
0: yeah and but- for my, my routine is i have i have a breakfast so like i have a breakfast i drink my water and i have my little routine with that and then and then i do my breakfast and then i have because i get up early depending on the day um so i i don't eat, eat till probably like seven eight you know okay I have, I have a lunch you know and mm-hmm. once i started kind of eating less right having just a breakfast and a lunch it really makes you appreciate like everything you put in your body And so you want to put good things in your body because you're not eating as much. So that was another thing that I found. Like, you don't mess around, you know, because. Yeah, you're
1: you're paying better attention to it. You're not just kind of grazing as the day goes by and losing inventory of what goes in your body, right? You're actually, like, focused on preparing yourself something that's helpful.
0: Yes, yes, for sure.
1: Yeah, it has that, that nice benefit to it. Um, well, I want to address exactly what you're doing. So the next study is actually, um, a good kind of representation of that. They, they looked at whole body fat burning over the course of an entire day, depending on if people ate breakfast and then exercise, or if they ate lunch and exercise, or if they ate dinner and exercise, they, three different um, protocols. Mm. And so what they did is they had men that cycled at a moderate intensity. And it was either again before or after the meal. And then on the, um, the fourth day, they repeated this experiment with no exercise at all. So how did they go about this? How do you know what you're using as a fuel for four days? You actually have people eat, sleep, and exercise in a metabolic chamber. So these four guys had to go into this chamber and chill out for four days and live out their lives while they were, their CO2 was being collected. And that mm. sounds kind of far out, but it's exactly what we do at my exercise lab. We don't have a chamber, but we do indirect calorimetry. And that tells us exactly what fuel someone is burning in real time, whether they're exercising or sitting at rest. So a lot of people come in, you know, just like Joe Schmo off the street. He wants to know how many calories do I burn at rest? Because he wants to know where his energy balance is for like Mm -hmm. weight loss or what have you. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we do these tests all the time. And um, the main finding was that exercise was only capable of again enhancing that fat burning if it was performed after the overnight fast. Mm-hmm. There were no differences if people fasted midday and then exercise after like a late lunch or even a, even a late dinner. Mm-hmm. So it really has to happen in the morning is, mm-hmm. is what we keep seeing.
0: Interesting. So I need to stop eating breakfast and make sure I, I mean- pack <laughs> fit. Training in before that, right?
1: (laughs) The thing is, you have to look at way out the benefits, right? If you're a person that just feels better overall with something in the tank, then no, by all means, like fuel your body, you know. And again, it just depends on how how great your desire is Mm. to increase fat. It's only going to increase fat during the workout. It's not like it's going to, you know, have you in a hyper metabolic state all day. It's just for the workout going to improve that.
0: Got you. Yeah. Um, and then how, how how fast? Um, uh, it like I'll stay will stay on topic. But how how quick should I should I be eating after the, the workout? Or what's what's the best what's the best? Actually,
1: workout? we we are gonna get to that. Um. And and I, I let me answer your question. Let me table that because I feel like it'll streamline in a moment here. But I want to ask you something, Alberto. So have you ever tried skipping breakfast and fasting through like two, three, four o'clock in the evening?
0: in the afternoon. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay. So Mm -hmm. did you feel that you ever had low blood sugar? I did. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's Mm -hmm. what's really tough. And that's what we found in the study I just talked about in my lab for the time restricted eating. And my boyfriend does it too. And he has a hard time, like, well, had a hard time at first with the low blood sugar. Right. But then you kind of get into a rhythm and then he's able to not feel hunger anymore, I suppose. But What I, why I brought that up is with a ketogenic diet, it's actually much easier to fast until late in the afternoon. And that's because you'll never have low blood sugar. If you're in a ketogenic state, Mm. your body's able to utilize fats as a source of energy to turn into ketones. And so I just wanted to plug that because for people following ketogenic diets, you never experience those highs and lows and have that volatile blood sugar problem. But for someone like yourself, you're, you know, healthy, fast. So makes
0: it makes a difference in the morning or in the evening.
1: When it would ha- what I'm trying to say is if you're following a diet like yourself, like, you know, you wake up, you have a healthy, even like a small balanced breakfast. Well, if you go longer than five hours, that's when your liver glycogen starts to run low. Those are your stores of your carbs. Mm. So after five hours, you're going to feel the effects of low blood sugar. So for anyone that's gone more than five hours without eating, when you're first starting out with fasting, you're gonna notice. Wow, I'm I'm feeling lightheaded, a little dizzy. You know, thoughts are not quite connecting. Maybe yeah, you're craving yeah. sugar. Yeah. Overeating at the next meal because you're so hungry. Right. So it is. It's hard. You have to overcome that. Those sensations.
0: I, I felt like I did that with with the with the dinner thing. You know, because I had a hard time dealing with it, and I was just so focused on my my goal with the TACFIT thing that I, the I was training for this level two test. I was so focused on that, that it overrode any, you know, any of that. And mm. I had a goal, right? And so I was able to mm. uh, stop eating. And then once I got through that, it was maybe it was a few weeks or whatever, you know, something like that. I got used to it. And then I had no problem mm. doing it. And now it's a lifestyle thing.
1: Right. Um, like you've adapted by now. right? And
0: mm-hmm. so you're saying, so you're saying like, I can have like a breakfast, like a small breakfast and still do that and still experience the benefits?
1: Uh, no, actually, yeah. So what I'm saying is if you wanted that benefit, again, it's just about during the workout. We're talking about how fuel shifts, metabolism shifts to favor or, in, or enhance fat burning specifically. But if you've eaten anything in the morning at all and you go to exercise at any point in the day, insulin is still going to be having a hormonal effect on your blood sugar and it's gonna be blunting your ability to burn fat when okay. you exercise. So even, even though insulin will return to baseline levels like three hours after a meal, all of these studies are really showing their the, the results are replicated. That you just, um, if you want that benefit, you can't eat breakfast. You gotta, you gotta exercise first thing in the mo- or early in the morning, fasted.
0: I see okay yeah. so i can maybe get up earlier in the morning and then and do that uh,
1: there you go yeah exactly get it out of the way mm-hmm. yeah, yeah and again it's it's different for everyone but
0: what um, happens to, to the breakfast is the most important meal of the day <laughs>
1: that's what's so funny right this research really turns that thinking on its head and um what we're finding with more you know current studies that are coming out is that's is it important it's it's important to eat if you feel a biological hunger and people should not probably force those hunger cues away their entire life. Um, but in general, we're specifically talking about if you're trying to hone in on really like having a fat oxidation benefit, yeah, you shouldn't eat in the, uh, before you exercise. And so, um, you know, we were just talking about the benefits of fat burning, but I, I wanted to say that there are other benefits for athletes to fasting that are just not around fat. Do you want right. to?
0: Yes, I would love to hear that. Yes, of course. Because okay. that was my goal, right? I was, uh, uh, that, yeah. was, that was my intent, totally.
1: Yeah. So my first question for you is, do you have back-to-back training sessions, like more than one training session in a day?
0: I've had it in the past, for sure.
1: Okay. For like fighting, right?
0: So Of course, yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. So especially for people who have like stacked workouts or brick workouts, so this would apply to um, shoot even like collegiate and high school athletes. Like a lot of times they'll have strength training like football players. I know in swimming, I had this strength training in the morning and then you swim two hours in the afternoon, right? right, right. So th- that would be like an example of a stacked workout or a triathlete would like do um, a swim and a bike or a bike and a run right following each other. Well, those people need to think about replacing what fuel they used, which is glycogen. And glycogen is stored sugar in the muscle and in the liver So how does fasting affect glycogen replenishment? Again, especially important for people who train at least every day, but imperative for people that have two a days. Okay, whatever that looks like. So um, one study indicated that a longer term fast, so a little longer than overnight, we're talking now like 15, 16 hours, actually extended time to exhaustion, which means simply how far or how long you can exercise and an example would be like jogging or like a half marathon, like running 13 miles or longer. And the other thing it did is spare glycogen stores. So um, the first study, it's, it was done in rats, but <laughs> bear with me. So rats were either fed or fasted for 24 hours. And then they ran till exhaustion and they ran at a good clip, like 70% of their max effort. And again, that's not a race pace. I'm not talking about people that are sprinting and going like, like racing. This is just like a good clip, but something you can maintain for two hours. And they did this till exhaustion. And what they found was that the muscle glycogen was significantly higher in the fasted rats compared to rats that had eaten. Even though the rats that were fasted ran significantly longer. Hmm. So that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? It does at first you're thinking how is it that you've nothing in the tank and you're able to run longer number one and then secondly you're able to replenish that muscle glycogen more quickly after the after the exercise Mm -hmm. and so i had to ask like why was that an effect for muscle glycogen sparing and really there's just like a greater mobilization of fat and dependence on fat that's happening during the exercise So again, that's why probably you fast to some degree, because you want again, people always want to burn some body fat. Right. And that's a reason they do it. And that's exactly what happens when you have um, No glycogen or very little glycogen, your body is forced to start utilizing fat as long as exercise is moderate. But as soon as you like shift up toward higher intensity that totally changes the question and the effect
0: just i can't you know when you when you would die i'm just going back in time with my competition competing and you know fasting and really dieting down because you have to you know cut a lot of weight for for the fights and things like that and i remember like kind of being a little more aggressive and being definitely on edge and stuff um um and you know that would say because your testosterone is getting you know your hormones are, you know to be able to hunt and to be able to you know Kill prey, if, you know, if you're hungry and things like that. Is how does that make? How does that play into into those 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 uh those yeah,
1: fasting? Um, let me think about that. Well, the only hormones I can think of are growth hormone, right? Which is overnight something that's going to be really elevated in deep sleep cycles. That's where you get your growth hormone. But again, in the daytime, the hormone that's constantly up and down is insulin, and that is a hormone and the job of that hormone is to bring sugar from the bloodstream into the cell. It's like a transporter and it does that. So it can either store sugar or can store store it as a fat or burn it right away. But then the other hormones would be like you're talking about, those are like readiness hormones, fight or flight hormones, the ones that make you feel keyed up. Right. And that would be like a catecholamine. So I'm talking about adrenaline or cortisol. Yeah, stress. All of, all of these change through, there's a rhythm and a cycle of all of these hormones that are either high at night or high in the day. And they go in accordance to usually circadian rhythm or in a response to a meal. But when you start exercising, that's really when epinephrine, which is like a hormone, is also gonna stimulate the breakdown of fat. So cortisol is also involved in that. And those are hormones and they drive cellular processes, they drive what, they um, determine what fuel you're gonna utilize. So hormones are incredibly powerful, like cellular mediators. And in your case, I mean, that's, I've never felt like that. I Maybe I felt like that before a race, right? Where your body is just in a catabolic mode, it's getting ready to break everything down, any fuel. But um, what you're describing is really dependent upon exercise intensity exercise intensity is what's really driven by
0: hormones i see Mm -hmm. yeah it's like the the stress stress but not too much stress is kind of like the goal for like a lifestyle like healthy lifestyle right
1: yeah no exactly and again cortisol is really at play with that
0: so let's go to let's go into the the pro the training protocols exercise protocols you you put on that
1: oh yeah sure yeah.
0: From studies using different exercise protocols. Luckily. So I
1: feel like the best way to break that down would be like intensity, like the, how intense the exercise is, right? We already covered walking. We talked one about jogging. And I thought um, I would talk about one more that people can have a direct application for their own training. So, um, again, I mentioned something we do in the lab all the time is to measure someone's expired gases so we know what fuel they're using at any point. And that is fully determined by how intense the exercise is. So here's an example. Um, Mixed martial arts is something where you have brief moments of high intensity anaerobic spurts, right? Grappling, whatever that might be. Weight training is another one where you have like a lift, you know, like a power lift, but then after you do the reps, you have intermittent recovery periods. Right. right. And the same is true for martial arts. You, you always have brief periods interspersed of low intensity and high intensity, low and then high. In a way it's almost like hit high intensity interval training, but it's more organic. Do you know what I mean? Right. So that's how I like to like think about how intense is the exercise versus like running as fast as you can for a 5k, that's a sprint. That's incredibly intense. That's more anaerobic, right? So um, this one study, this is how they defined where you get that fat burning benefit. W- where does it begin and where does it end? So they looked at men in both fed states and fasted states while they cycled at three different intensities. And these were always performed first thing in the morning or at least before noon and they had all standardized dinners the night prior, okay? So they found that for the men that cycled, it didn't matter what intensity they rode, if they had eaten breakfast even three hours prior, it significantly increased their burning of sugar and suppressed fat burning. Hmm. It didn't matter how intense you went. But our question again is, I wanna burn extra fat during the workout, that's why I fast, so how do I know where the benefit stops? how intensely does that benefit have a ceiling? And so the clincher is that the exact threshold for where fat burning is no longer enhanced is at 59% of maximal effort. That's what all these studies found. 59, no greater than 70%. And the way they define that in research is VO2 max. But a much easier way of looking at that is a percentage of maximal effort. So let me kind of back it up. Have you ever monitored your heart rate on the mat?
0: On the mat, uh, not so much on the mat, but in the where we always take our heart rate, you know.
1: Okay, and, and so you take it in the middle of the work workout.
0: In the middle, after, so I'm kind of I have some awareness of where I'm at with my heart rate because of that. Mm-hmm. That awareness with me, mm-hmm. so I know where I'm at, and you know I do things to to get my heart rate down to you know so I can perform better, mm-hmm. do better.
1: And TacFit is mainly a recovery system, am I right about that?
0: Uh, you know, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's a complete strength conditioning and recovery for sure.
1: Okay. So would you describe that as low, moderate or high intensity? It's
0: all, it's all, all. okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. So, um, when you look at your heart rate, do you have any idea what zone that puts you in?
0: Um,
1: like, how do you know, right?
0: How do I know of what the, oh, just on the, on the the level of a heart, my heart, my heart rate.
1: Yeah, like intensity. Yeah, so you look average, at your heart
0: rate. Average, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. you know, Scott has like a four day and a seven day wave. So low, you know, you know, no, no mod, you know, no, uh, uh, the middle, moderate. moderate, you know. so you kind of he kind of waves the the levels, you know. That's what yeah you, he you know, wants you to do.
1: Yeah. So the best way to do it is to just take an average of whatever the workout was. So ha- am I correct that I've seen you wearing an Aura ring? Yes. Okay, yeah.
0: Not the middle finger. <laughs>
1: yeah, I was like, what? Watch your manners. Yeah. So I, I unfortunately also have an aura ring. And I say unfortunately, because I have a hate relationship with it. Um, it tells me what I already know. Mm. And it does give me the impetus to change behaviors. And we'll get into that later when we talk about like exercise or um, alcohol and, and sleep. But one thing that Aura gives you is heart rate variability, right? And it does give you resting heart rate, but unfortunately it doesn't give you heart, real heart rate data during the day while you're exercising. Mm-hmm. But if you ever just wore a simple heart rate monitor, like you said, took your pulse, you'll have an idea. Right. So let's, um, let's do myself it as an example. And then I'm going to do, do you as an example so that, you know, is TACFit something that I should fast before or am I exceeding that 59% of max threshold where there's no benefit to fasting? That's ultimately what the question is. The takeaway is if my heart rate is greater than a certain percentage that research has shown us has no benefit for augmented fat burning, then why do it,
0: mm.
1: right? And so again, intensity is what defines that. So here, to like make sense we that. We're
0: talking a lot about like fat burning, but what about performance, like performance-wise?
1: Yeah, so will perform? You mean for fasting, like what the um, performance is?
0: Well, in the, or, in, the in your training and your competition, right? I'm just kind of so not just about fat burning because we're talking about a lot about fat burning, but how about like performance-wise?
1: Yeah, so okay, we'll, we'll come back to the um, the the heart rate question, but um, in general, the two main benefits are that it can increase time to exhaustion. As long as your intensity, again, it's driven 100% by how intensely you're working out right. is less than 70%. That's the ceiling. So if you fast and you know that you're doing something that's moderate intensity, and you can, you can actually define that by looking at what 70% of your heart rate max is, that's how you would know. So there's an easy way to calculate that number. It's called carbonin formula. You take 220 minus your age, and that's your heart rate max in theory. The more trained and conditioned you are, the higher max heart rate you would actually have for your age. What
0: about the Miller formula? Do you Do the, the Miller formula?
1: Um, I don't know. This one's called Carvonin. Okay. Okay. And it's just 220 minus age.
0: Right. That's what we do. It's the same. Maybe it's the same one.
1: Oh, okay. Maybe two men invented the same thing, <laughs> but um, yeah, basically that's going to give you a theoretical heart rate max. Got so it. So once you know that number, you would then take 0.7 times it by 0. 0.7, that's 70% of your max, mm. and you would know exactly what heart rate you shouldn't be exceeding. Right. Right, Hopefully if are, you probably, wanted.
0: We are 60 to 80% of our heart rate max, you know, that's, that's correct. That's and so if you're over 80%, like in, in our TACFIT, you know, certification and things that you, you know, you're over, you know, you shouldn't be doing it. Right. To so recover from, you know, from techniques and you're, you should be in good enough shape to mm-hmm. be able to get that 80%, that's the goal.
1: Right, and I'm specifically talking about time to exhaustion. So this would be, it could apply to pretty much any exercise that's longer than 90 minutes. Endurance exercise is defined as longer than 90 minutes and and onward of continued exercise, right? No matter how intense it is, it's 90 minutes or longer. So if you wanted to extend your time to fatigue, the only time that fasting is going to have a benefit for increased fat burning, is if the intensity is at 70% of heart rate max or lower. Does that make sense?
0: It totally does.
1: Yeah. Or you lose the benefit. Like eat. Totally you may does. as well eat.
0: I can give you an example of I did CrossFit. You know, there was no TacFit, fit. You know, so I did CrossFit and I would listen to Scott and he would talk about, you know, with the, the four day wave and the seven day wave. And you know, I'm very competitive and so they they have this the leaderboard, you know, and I would try to be number one and I would go in there with the intent of taking it easy, but you all want to be number one. And so mm-hmm. I would kill myself. And yes, I got in good shape, but it was sustainable. And I ended up kind of, I feel like even gaining uh, like kind of fat and stuff from like the excess stress. Mm-hmm. It was too much stress, mm-hmm. right? So I totally get that.
1: Yeah, so really again, it's just, you have to ask yourself like, first you have, a, have to have a way to monitor how intensely you're exercising, right? Whatever it is that you do. Once you have a handle on that, which you said like, okay, I pretty much know what my heart rate is in a fit session. After you know that, then take a look. And again, that magical number for fat burning was all the way down to like 59% of max. That's not very much, it's pretty low. But again, VO2 max doesn't quite correlate with heart rate. So I want I to tell you an exact way to, to know, okay? There's a linear relationship with VO2 max and heart rate, but you can do it with simple math. So I can do it with myself and then we can even do it with your, as long as you mind telling everyone how old you are.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: <laughs> okay. So um, basically, you start with 220 minus your age, mm-hmm. okay? And then using myself, I'm 43. And so that would make my theoretical heart rate max um, 177 beats per minute. But look how nerdy this is. What? Can you see this? Yes. This is a graph of my VO2 max. And we do this in my lab. I did it. It's a running protocol. You, It took like 18 minutes until you... literally no longer keep your legs under you and you have a tube you're collecting expired gases and the reason i show you this is because i found out what my true heart rate max is it's actually 192. Mm. so i just told you that 177 is what that formula tells me i should max out at but i can get it up to 192. so the Mm. more conditioned you are the higher your heart rate you can sustain right at Mm. max so anyhow now i know it's it's 192. so for me to find out what 59% of that threshold is, you have to take 75% of heart rate max. So here's what I'm saying. I would take 192 times 0.75 and that gives me 146 beats. That means if I do any exercise and I'm running higher than 146 beats per minute, I may as well eat. There's no further benefit. So it's just like a clear line in the sand. And that's what research is so cool, is it informs you with like a ceiling of like, if you wanna benefit from something, do it right. If you're gonna go out and run as fast as you can, I guarantee your heart rate is higher than 59% of max. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But for you with um, martial arts, no, like I, you might be just right in that range. Again, you would have to figure it out. So I'm gonna do math with my calculator here, okay? And we'll, we'll do your number. So 220. Alberta, how old are you?
0: 44. 44? Okay.
1: So 176 is your theoretical max. I guarantee you can push it higher because you're well conditioned, right? So 176, I told you that you have to take 0.75. And that means you can't push it past 132 beats per minute. That's pretty low. That's that's like moderate intensity, right? Low to moderate intensity. So now you know you have a number. And if you had a heart rate strap or any way to monitor it or even just taking your pulse in the middle of the session, if you're like 140, 150 beats, it's eat. You may as well eat. There's no benefit. But if you're keeping it under 132, then try fasting. You'll have a little bit of a benefit there.
0: Ah, uh, okay. Gotcha. Does that make
1: sense? So yeah, that's that's yeah. really like what everything is telling less, us. Less is
0: more. Less is more, right? Less is less more less
1: is more for this case. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's really all I got for. Fasted cardio, I feel like the most important thing to take away from that is um, less intense has a greater fat burning benefit. Um, It's only beneficial to burn fat during exercise if you do it first, not first thing in the morning, but before you've eaten anything. It's not gonna have the effect if you have breakfast or lunch or dinner.
0: Okay, I'm gonna switch it up. I'm gonna switch it up. There you go. Switch it up good okay what sources of fat does the body use as a fueling as a fuel during exercise
1: yeah no that's a great question so um, let me ask you what do you think most people have an opinion they're like oh I'm pretty sure the body uses this and I'm not talking about spot reduction but where would you guess like your body is taking fat from
0: um, Or where right, would you hope? people think <laughs> people would think that you know if you do uh, you know ab exercises that you're going to lose Belly off the off the stomach, but that's I know that's not the case. It's like um I don't know, actually, I don't know. Where wherever your uh I don't know, wherever your body, your nervous system tells it uh, to
1: uh-huh.
0: <laughs> wherever you it's kind come, of comes off the easiest where stuff is flowing better mm-hmm. through your body, you know, that that's working the best, right? Mm-hmm. Probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, and places that aren't so connected kinda it's like slower to, to, mm-hmm. to lose that, maybe.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yep, that's exactly intuitive. And so the body does have a lot of different depots where it can draw from those fat sources, but the predominant source when you're exercising is actually from inside the muscle. We store fat in the muscle and it's called an intramuscular triglyceride. And so we use it from there.
0: Intramuscular triglyceride?
1: Yeah, intramuscular inside the muscle triglyceride. And we primarily tap into that, but we also use it like subcutaneously all over the body. And the the third area that we pull from is probably the most pathogenic source of fat in your body. It's deep inside the abdominal cavity and it's called visceral adipose tissue. Mm. And that's the most dangerous type of fat that is really like able to invade organs like the liver. Um, around you know, um, your kidneys, everything that's like right there, abdominally located. So the good news is, like you said, it's more accessible, we can utilize those fats. But yeah, that's, that's really where fat comes from. And it's really determined by your training status, but even your sex and your age, your muscle fiber typing, all of those things influence where you would pull fat from. Um, and then there was a study that I pulled to find out how they knew where fat was coming from. Because again, fasting is a reason that people would try to harness this. So in this case, men um, were, it's another cycling study. It's like one of the easiest ways to do that. You just put it, a bike on an ergometer. And these men were able to like continually adjust the load on their bike so that the wattage would, would go to a point where they could maintain it for a two hour bike ride, okay? And the result was that if they overnight fasted It markedly enhanced the breakdown of stored fat within muscle, specifically those intramuscular triglycerides. And the second thing they found was that if people ate before they did the exercise, in this case cycling, Mm -hmm. it completely inhibited fat breakdown from inside the muscle. There was zero. It, it, It in fact stopped it. It prevented the breakdown of fat. So again, you can't spot treat But in this case, the active muscles in cycling are what? The legs. Mm. So none of the fat was coming from the legs anywhere in the lower trunk at all. It would have been coming from maybe subcutaneous sources. But again, what all this actually points to just to like tie it back up nicely with a bow Mm. is that eating in and of itself doesn't matter what you eat unless it's pure fat. But pretty much anything you eat that's a mixed meal or has any fat, uh, protein or carbs is going to inhibit fat burning during exercise. Even if you do it way later in the day and you had your meal like many hours ago and it all comes back down to insulin and the hormonal effects that result from insulin. It just suppresses fat burning. So yeah, in general, um, intensity matters, but just, just not eating before you exercise is, again. Kind of the place that research keeps returning to.
0: Yeah, super interesting. Like, uh, yeah, you know, I wanted to talk about like Mm -hmm. you said. You sent me some notes on uh, Mm -hmm. you know on 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 fish oils, uh, how that affects you know how it affects these things as well.
1: Yeah, no, actually, that's a nice tie-in because that's also a fat, right? And we're talking about fat. Well eating fats also has um, a great effect on your body and it depends on what type of fat. And what you're talking about, fish oil, those are essential fats. Essential so fat. before we dive into that, let me ask you, do you take omega-3 fatty acids or fish oil?
0: You know, I, I was heavily doing it when I was intensely tra- int- intensively training to, mm-hmm. for recovery, trying to really do everything I could do to recover and to not have the inflammation. That was, The inflammation was the big mm-hmm. thing right, that I was dealing with. Um, and so I did, and it's, it's a game changer. And I remember, I remember, because I was, I did a protocol with Scott, like over, you know, ten years ago, fifteen years ago. I don't remember what it was now, but you know, it, like I remember my fingernails, my hair, everything started to kind of grow and increase and feel better. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, so I have, yes, absolutely. I remember, I, I would, you know, if I'd get a cut or something, too, I'd bleed more because I was taking. Oh
1: yep. Yeah, that's exactly correct.
0: Yeah. And so. so now, I'd always take even more than I was supposed to, and I would just, I would feel the difference. I would totally feel the difference.
1: Yeah, no, what you just described are the two most well-known benefits of taking fish oil or omega-3 fats, which I'll like discuss how those break down. Um, But the first thing you said is it's a vasodilator. It opens up all the vessels in the body Mm -hmm. and it also decreases um, clotting. So if you do, like you said, if you got a cut, you would just bleed like a hemophiliac. Yeah, that's because it reduces clotting, which is good if you're concerned for stroke risk, Mm. right? You don't want a clot to form. And a lot of people are at high risk for having a stroke or a heart attack. So fish oil is the other thing you just said, a powerful food-based anti-inflammatory. So it does both. You you totally hit those on the head. And before we dive down that hole too much, I want to just give people an idea of what are these fats, omega-3s, right? That's important just in case anyone's like, I don't know what that is in my diet. Um, I already said fish oil, but it's not just fish oil, it's any fatty fish. So primarily um, salmon, Mm. trout, and tuna. And it also includes um, certain nuts and seeds. So walnuts, flax, hemp, and pumpkin seeds are all omega-3 essential fats. We cannot make them in the body. We have to get them in the diet interesting. And then when you look at omega-9s, omega-9 fats, you may have some of these two in your body. They're similar to omega-3s in what they do. Those are avocados, uh, olives, olive oil, but also like a lot of the nuts I didn't mention, like almonds, macadamias, pistachios, I think pecans. That's omega-9. Omega-9 fatty acids, exactly. So they're in the same class. And the reason I lump all those foods I just listed together is because of what they do or don't do for inflammation. Mm. So when you eat fats in your diet, they either turn on or turn off inflammation. So I'll give you another example. Um, do you in your diet have a lot of corn or soybean oil by chance? Or do you eat processed foods that you think might have those?
0: You know, I, uh, I'll tell you, I, I, don't know if I, I, I did share with you when we talked a few weeks back, about mm-hmm. multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. I'm very hypersensitive to things that cause me inflammation as well. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely stay away from like soy, like I don't do soy sauce, any of those kinds of uh, those things Um, and corn. I'm okay with corn if I have just a little bit of it, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm okay with corn. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do have corn. I like the way it tastes. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. It's delicious.
0: Corn on the cob. cob, Yeah, no problem. Corn chips. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, these are all things like people are like, I don't eat those. Oh wait. Everything in a package is made from corn or soybean oil. Right, right. Anything processed. 100%, it's got that in it. Um, salad dressings, things that you would think are healthy.
0: Right? Like soy sauce, yeah. That.
1: Yeah, no, totally. And so, And soy, like soy is in almost everything too. And in fact, what we're feeding to the animals we eat is corn and soy too now, including fish. Fish are now being engineered and able to tolerate corn and soy, like farmed fish, they're eating corn and soy. Yeah, so like, it's not just what you eat, it's what you eat eats, you know? So the the whole food chain. But back to why I asked you that, the main benefit for people, anyone, whether you're an athlete or not, from omega-3s is that they probably are eating too many omega-6s, which are corn and soybean and vegetable oils that are not olive oil, not avocado oil. So all of these vegetable oils are pro-inflammatory. They're the opposite of-
0: Omega-6s. Yeah,
1: so it's that ratio that we've fallen out of balance with and it's how to go about addressing that imbalance between the omega-3 and the omega-6 that's just out of whack, right? Um, and so again, like, how, how is that working in the body? Because I wanna go back to what you talked about with um, anti-inflammation, right? so all the fats that we eat in our diet no matter what kind they are again i told you they either turn on or off inflammation and the reason they do that is because they actually make prostaglandins and those are hormone-like chemicals that are really powerful they travel in the blood-like hormones and they're created in all of our cells and they drive like a huge number of cellular processes Mm. Um, another form of prostaglandins that some people have heard of they're called Anyway, they're, they're inflammatory mediators, right? And so omega three and nine fats make series one prostaglandins. And what those do is they're anti-inflammatory. They improve insulin sensitivity. They, they actually suppress insulin. They reduce allergies. So people even with like seasonal allergies, right? They lower blood pressure. Remember I told you that they're like vasoconstrictors, right? Fish oils, it opens up or vasodilates. Um, A vasoconstrictor tightens down or clamps down on blood pressure, fish oil opens the vascular system. And that would be another reason why people can bleed more easily too. But in general, most people have hypertension, high blood pressure. Fish oil has been shown to lower that. It also um, eases asthma because asthma is an inflammatory condition because the bronchioles become constricted. So um, aside from those inflammatory situations, it would also help alleviate depression, uh, attention deficit disorders, even PMS for women. So um, fish oil is incredible. And there is a mountain of evidence in the last decade that just supports-
0: So fish oil fish oils is omega-3?
1: It is omega-3, exactly. And there are many different kinds of omega-3s, some that are absolute crap, And some that are pharmaceutical grade, and that's a whole nother conversation, but I invite your users or your listeners to write you in and we can put out a blast of what would be considered pharmaceutical grade and how you know you're getting a good supplement. There are ways to tell.
0: Where do you you recommend? What do you recommend? Uh,
1: Well, I like two or three of the brands that are out there. And again, they're all pharmaceutical grade. And one of them is called Quell and that's made by Douglas Laboratories. So Quell is a great product by Douglas Labs. Q, Another one-
0: Q, Q. It's with Q.
1: A, a Q. yep, Q-U-E-L-L, uh-huh. And the thing is you have to have a doctor or a dietitian actually prescribe it. You oh. can only get any Douglas Lab supplements because they are pharmaceutical grade. Okay. Um, the two that you don't have to, that you can pull off a grocery shelf is, um, Nordic Naturals. They make a really high omega-3. Um, DHA and EPA, those are the two types of omega-3 fats. The highest level is the one you would want and we will get into dosing in a moment here, like how you know what you should take. Um, and the third one is called Metagenics. Those are not as potent as the Douglas labs are, but they're a close second. And cost-wise, they're, they're right in alignment with it. But those are the three brands that I recommend.
0: So uh, what are the ones I don't even know. I actually pay attention to the brands, but I, you know, I get the ones at whole foods and the, the sprouts, you know, what's the, well, yeah, there's a lot of different brands. Right. But the, uh-huh. the I, I, in the, the bottom, the bottom ones, the the ones that you have to refrigerate after opening instead of the pills. What's the yeah. Difference? Okay.
1: <laughs> well, one way you can do a simple test to know if it's truly an omega three fatty acid
0: mm-hmm. would be
1: to the little gel caps. You can take a little pinprick like a safety pin, poke it, squeeze it out onto a plate, leave it in the freezer overnight. If it at all turns cloudy or opaque and it freezes, it's full of crap and fillers. Like they probably are putting other lipids in there or even omega-6s, but you don't want omega 6 We're getting plenty of that in the diet from the vegetable oils we just talked about. So it should stay clear or like slightly yellow, but basically clear, not opaque, and it should stay liquid. And that's how you, that's one quick test, but there are many other ways. And it involves looking at different um, labels and third party certifications that would be on the label of the product itself.
0: What are some third party um, certifications?
1: One is called like CGMPs, current good manufacturing practices. That would either be on the label. Um, If it said third party verified and it showed who regulated it, that would be another way to look. And again if these companies are paying for that you better believe it's going to be on the label right so but really i only recommend those three brands to be quite honest and i don't rep any of them but yeah douglas labs um nordic naturals and metagenics have metagenics. the best yeah
0: nordic, nordic nordic labs that's can you get that where can you get can you get yeah, that?
1: anywhere pretty yeah. much online amazon and i don't recommend buying some of these on amazon because sometimes it's like off label Um, providers. So if you ever see those three brands cheaper, Mm. it's best to always go direct to the source. The supplement industry is so heavily deregulated Mm. that you already don't know what you're getting unless it's been third party verified. And so those brands are reputable, but I always buy directly from the source like Nordic naturals. I won't buy it at a pharmacy. I will go to the website. Yeah. I won't go to Amazon either. Anyone can like copy the label and make any product. That's how terrible the supplement industry is in the United States.
0: Yeah. What about in Europe?
1: They have much more oversight for, for labeling for supplements. Yeah, absolutely. America's the worst, like in terms of
0: FDA, FDA is uh, <laughs>
1: FDA is food and drugs, not okay. supplements.
0: Okay. It's not regulated by FDA.
1: Right, exactly. So it's really like as a consumer, you have to be your own watchdog. And though at the worst, you're urinating it out at, at the, well, on the worst end, you're wasting money. You're not storing or utilizing these supplements, right? Cause you, they're not really what they claim to be. Right. So it's either a waste of money. It doesn't do what it says, or there's just no therapeutic benefit. There's no measurable change. Another way you can know if it's a good one is, and this is for really any supplement, you just get pre and post labs. So if you have good health care go to get your standard lipid panel. In this case, for fish oil, you'd wanna look at um, fasting insulin, which is not something most doctors will give. Usually they do fasting glucose. but you would want fasting insulin. And the other thing you'd get is a just standard lipid panel, triglyceride, total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, all of those. And what fish oil can do is lower your LDLs and it changes the ratio of triglyceride to HDLs. So it it moves it more favorably away from heart disease and away from stroke. And again, how do you know? You get labs before taking fish oil, and then you start taking fish oil, and you get the labs three months later. And if there's no effect, then that supplement's trash.
0: Right, right, yeah. I try to get my blood work done every, I guess every three months, you know, just to be on point. Yeah, no, that's even better. No.
1: Yeah, well, especially if you have a condition, right, that's inflammatory, any dietary intervention you do, you can immediately see an effect with labs in like three to four months.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, in general, it's just, if you're going to pay a lot of money, and fish oil is expensive.
0: The, yeah, it adds up, that's for sure, especially mm-hmm. more than yours, you know, than it says to take on the on the bottle or whatever. So oh, it's of, like, you know, yeah. You take two, three spoons. <laughs> right. Mean, you know, the difference, you know, I would totally feel the difference. Yeah. But, and everything else
1: I mean the the brands I just um, said to you they're like a dollar fifteen per pill and sometimes you're taking three to four soft gels a night that's four dollars a day yeah like do you want to throw that away or you want to know that it's actually being absorbed and working as an anti-inflammatory yeah you know?
0: uh, but bone broth you know like my wife's Armenian and they have this thing mm-hmm. called hash, you know it's bone broth basically mm-hmm. and, and uh, I would I did these little bone broth parties before a couple of the ta foot and stuff just because uh-huh. I was able to improve my performance by eating that, you know, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and just straight, I had some onions, but you know, hardcore like bone broth.
1: So collagen is really what you're after with bone broth. It's the best source of collagen, better than any supplement you can take. And so collagen is of course that connective tissue. It's a protein in the body. Mm. And there's so much mixed reviews on collagen in terms of it being bioavailable, meaning well absorbed. the body and the one great way to get it is to drink it from bone broth because that is from an animal from the bones from the marrow (laughs) there's it's not been like reduced down to a powder heated up like yeah they you know exactly what type of collagen there are three different types and your body absorbs some better than others i think it's type two but bone broth is a safe way you know what it is there's no question as to like what it is you're putting in your body so yeah No, um, another great, um, thing that's in bone broth is just like fats, right? Sometimes. Yeah. So so it's full of nutrients and on top of it, you're going to get a good dose of collagen. So that's in fact, the only way I ever recommend people to get, um, collagen. Yeah. is bone broth, but you're onto something.
0: Yeah. I would feel, I would, I had to do like a lot of pull-ups and stuff to like strength things. And I just felt stronger. Totally.
1: Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, there's a there's sodium. It's like a good source of sodium for keto diets. I always recommend bone broth for that. Mm. But um, heart, yeah, heart healthy source of fat and the collagen. Those are the main benefits.
0: How about CoQ enzyme 10?
1: CoQ 10? I don't know a lot about. Um, I know that it's supposed to enhance recovery. Isn't that what it's supposed to do? Or like...
0: It's supposed to give you energy or energy to the cells, right? Something like that.
1: So what I know about CoQ10 is it's involved in metabolism in the mitochondria. The mitochondria is like the powerhouse of of every cell. And CoQ10 is one of the enzymes that helps turn foods into fuel, but it doesn't directly give energy. It can't, it's an enzyme, it's a coenzyme. The only things that can give people direct energy, carbohydrate, fat, protein, ketones water water is actually a byproduct not not a fuel so yeah coenzyme q it cannot deliver energy directly it might indirectly help you know by buffering a like intracellular process can you know converting nutrients into fuel Mm. but i honestly don't know about um yeah i don't know either i
0: don't know either fish oil a hundred percent like Mm -hmm. I fish oils too, like I, I, you know, I just know how I feel and uh, yeah, the, the good quality fish oils, like that mm-hmm. total difference.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: how about vitamin D supplements?
1: Yeah, so vitamin D is actually something that's a part of a lot of those fish oil supplements too, and that's because it's a fat soluble vitamin and vitamin D is needed to absorb fat in the small intestine. So you'll often see those two together, by the way, and that's a good thing. Okay. But um, vitamin D is obviously the sunshine vitamin and... It's one of the only um, vitamins that has had a makeover by the FDA in the last decade in terms of human need and recommended daily intake. Vitamin D got, like I said, kind of a makeover because what we were realizing is that most Americans anyway are deficient or low in vitamin D. Mm. And um, I can't imagine what the pandemic has done to people's vitamin D stores because we're indoors more. And um, yeah, the fires, the wildfires took the the sun out of the sky in Northern California for a week. I was feeling the effects of that.
0: California as well, yeah. Oh
1: my God, Oregon too, I guess, right? So yeah, I think. Yeah, no, definitely um, vitamin D has huge implications in two areas and that's um, immunity. It boosts immunity. And the second thing it does is help alleviate depression. Also, vitamin D has a role in almost every metabolic process mm. as like a cofactor, so it's it's definitely playing a role on every cellular process. but in general, most of us are deficient or low, and in order to become um, to get adequate stores it's really difficult to do a diet. I think I want to say that vitamin D is in whole milk and in some fish, I think, and that is the only place you can get it. So, um, what you want to do is take, if you were to find out that you're low, which you would have to get a lab, it's like called hydroxyl vitamin D something. Mm. If you found out you're low or um, deficient, then you would take a loading protocol that's 10,000 to 50,000 IU a day. Mm. And you would do the 10,000 every single day, five days a week for three months. So, you can do that loading protocol. Um, again, that's 10,000 IU international units of vitamin D every day, five days a week. You can like skip the weekends and you would do that for three months and then you can uh, dial it back, but that should be enough. Again, it stays in your fat cells. So it stays longer than like a water soluble vitamin, like vitamin C would.
0: Well, I'm going to, I'm going to go down the line with me. about magnesium, right? Magnesium. I remember mean, yeah. uh, when I was younger, like uh, I felt like I, I woke, I woke up like a piece of cardboard. I was so stiff and this Olympic rower told me about this stuff, the magnesium calm, the calm. The uh, mad calm. Yeah. And so I, so once I started to take it, it was like, like basically like I, w- I was a new person uh, and I've kind of implemented And of course, Scott always talks about it too. Mm-hmm. So could you, ta- could you talk about magnesium and what the effect effects that it does for, for people?
1: Yeah. What I know about magnesium is there are different types. Um, Like there's mag citrate, there's slow release magnesium. And I actually have it in my, that's the one that I take. Um, That one's more of a time release effect, like that people take overnight. Um, But in general, it's a mineral and it's in every single muscle contraction. It's involved just like sodium and potassium are. And uh, magnesium is something that people take for muscle spasms, but also calming. And it's, it's a um, powerful, not diuretic, what's the other word um, that helps you go numero dos? What is that called? Why can't I think of it? <laughs> what you're... is that called? <laughs> it's not uh, a diuretic, it uh, is a laxative.
0: Uh, laxative, there you go.
1: <laughs> laxative, so it depends on the type that you take. Um,
0: and the, so the, the calm is, is magnesium, um, Is it, what's the, what's the type of magnesium that calm is?
1: Yeah, I actually I I think citrate, but I would have to look. I, in fact, I think I have it in my notes because, um, sometimes people with on ketogenic diet starting out, they have, um, constipation Mm. and that's because when you start a ketogenic diet, it, um, dehydrates you and dehydration can lead to constipation. That's one thing. Also lack of fiber, but I'm looking it up for magnesium there uh, the bowel regiment is milk of magnesia have okay. you heard of the Phillips, that blue bottle been around since the 70s i used it, I've
0: used it uh, well i've used it when i was younger you know to lose that extra pound
1: and yeah exactly right to make weight
0: so what was it those husks? Uh, what's that stuff called that was like a husk where you put, where you oh, put psyllium it, husk. Psyllium husk. Oh my God. Horrible. Yeah, like that stuff. It was horrible. It was like one yeah. of the worst experiences. But I did it, and I lost like a half a pound or something like that or whatever. That's
1: it was. really disgusting. You <laughs> think Sorry, about it. talking about me. it. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> it
0: was, <laughs> half a pound of what? <laughs> oh my God! You know, it's just disgusting going on going in. You know, but it's it's just crazy. You know what you do uh-huh. when you. And you have to cut that weight, you know, that oh, yeah. pound or a pound will change your life, you know?
1: Yeah, and, you don't care if it's water weight or fecal weight. You're like, just let's let's I make weight.
0: We feel great after, you know? Um, so. Well, in that
1: case, it's uh, milk and magnesia. And I, I honestly can't remember what form that's in. I'll, I'd have to look. But um, like I just kinda
0: like it's kind of like a it's like sharp tasting when you it's like a like a shot almost you know right that it tastes
1: ball. like a weird minty right
0: right right ah yeah. it's
1: not good it's not great but um, <laughs> I know
0: like Walgreens or one of those the farm the, the
1: yeah ones. exactly and it can be habit forming so you don't want to do a lot of it but again like it so I guess to back to your I don't, question
0: otherwise somebody want to want to keep taking that <laughs>
1: no you don't no and it's That's only for people really good. <laughs> it's because they're so backed up they oh. they have constipation wow. so it, it's literally part of a bowel regimen that like a gastroenterologist would give to their patient if they are even somewhat constipated so um, but again magnesium to answer your question there are many forms they do different things um usually they're bound to a salt, so that changes the way that it works like mechanistically um but i think i covered all the things that it does right so it's like anywhere from reducing muscle cramps to like allegedly helping um, alleviate muscle soreness it unfortunately didn't work that way for me that's why i started taking it i thought oh i have such bad doms delayed onset muscle soreness will this help me it didn't but what it does do is it's a powerful laxative so you know it helps you have a nice bowel movement in the morning and that's great like again Slow release mag is what I'm talking about right now, the SRT.
0: Mm. I think it would help me sleep too, you know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, like the calm. Yeah,
1: exactly. It yeah. People too. And, and
0: what's crazy too is uh, like if I ever eat bad or whatever, I would, yeah, like a little tricks, little tricks that I could do is like, I would, I could do the calm, you know, after, or even the fish oils, like take a bunch of fish oils and then, you know, Yeah.
1: Water.
0: Yeah, exactly. You no know, it's like it never happened almost.
1: Yeah, no, I really think um magnesium and fish oil those are those are the worthwhile supplements. like I think that everyone should be taking those I, They're perfectly safe. there are only benefits from them, and again, the form of magnesium matters, but other than that, no, those are completely safe and um, those are the only, one of the only two supplements I recommend. Nice, yeah, yeah.
0: How about electrolytes, you know electrolytes
1: So it depends on what your needs are. But most people, as long as they're drinking eight ounces of water eight times a day, like that's kind of the general, and that's not what everybody needs. It depends on how active you are. You're not going to be worried about electrolyte disturbances unless you're doing repeated bouts of exercise in the heat. So your kidneys regulate electrolyte balance better than any supplement that you would ever need to take like that's what those organs do they have an absolute tight control over that and people always think like I need to be having extra sodium no you don't you just need to be drinking more water and thinking about hydration so um, for the general population you do not need an electrolyte at all right. again if you're someone who is training in the heat right right, right um, more than an hour and a half each day you are losing a lot more sweat. And if you're, if you're an endurance athlete and you're um, outdoors training longer than that, you would start needing to look into replenishing sodium and potassium. Right. But honestly, the other electrolytes, you don't really need to worry about. It's just right. mainly sodium, potassium. Calcium is lost. It's like such nominal amounts by the body as well as magnesium. And the way that someone would know if they're a heavy sweater, is by looking at their clothing after a a workout session and you can actually see salt encrusted on your clothing. You know what I'm talking about?
0: Uh, Yep, I totally do.
1: Yeah, so um, that would be a time that you would ask yourself, okay, maybe I'm losing too much sodium and I need to uh, supplement with like half a teaspoon of sea salt with two glasses of water. But it really isn't anything that crazy.
0: Yeah, there's a as an emergency, the emergency company, they had the little packets mm-hmm. and it was a potassium electrolyte one. Yeah. And that was a total game changer for me once that, because I would feel like low energy and I would mm-hmm. put that in whatever, even the, wa- the water and I, you know, and it was, I would totally feel like I would it'd bring you back to life.
1: Yeah, no, I think um the the emergencies, they have more than just potassium. I think they've got sodium, potassium and like an array of vitamins and minerals in there, don't they?
0: Uh, I'm not sure, but I would get the, the electrolyte, electrolyte ah. one.
1: Okay. Know? Yeah. I mean, maybe
0: potassium or whatever it had, you know, like you're saying.
1: Yeah. And the thing is like, because your kidneys do such a good job, you don't want to mess with just one mineral. So to only supplement with a great load of potassium is a bad idea, right? You can like go about it with like thinking about what's in your diet and leafy greens and like rich, colorful vegetables are going to have a lot of potassium Mm -hmm. and potassium is in almost every food to be quite honest. Um, so you don't wanna mess with just one. Uh, you you really just would wanna look at sodium and potassium. So an electrolyte that just has those two, or just like I said, supplementing with a little extra sodium. And by little, I'm talking about one fourth to one half teaspoon only of sea salt in about 16 to 32 ounces of water mm. is plenty. And um, people that would need electrolyte replacement, 100% across the board, is anyone on a ketogenic diet for the first three months. Those are people that definitely need to look into, especially replacing sodium and possibly potassium. And the reason for that is because when you lose all that carbohydrate, which is glycogen, Mm. your insulin levels drop. And insulin tells uh, uh, the kidneys to excrete sodium, to, to lose salt. So your body is losing salt and your body is losing water. It's losing both so it's not only dehydrated but it is in a hyponatremic state low salt so in those cases you would have in fact i experienced this horribly i almost fainted under a barbell oh no way when i first went keto um i had to have my friend like pick me up off the floor in the gym and it was because i wasn't taking sodium supplementation seriously so for those people for sure think about it but honestly the general person, even that's like physically active and not excessively sweating outdoors, just drink water.
0: And you mentioned the, the the greens and stuff, and I feel like that's a game changer for me. I make sure I eat, mm-hmm. you know, lots of uh, greens, like organic greens. I really feel the difference with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that. You know, when you were talking about the magnesium and all that, like bunch, mm-hmm. like they should just be eating like a lot of greens with their meats and all their their those proteins, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. A healthy, balanced meal where you have an array of those phytochemicals, minerals, and vitamins. And you're gonna get that if you have a well-varied diet, you know, with like a healthy source of protein, like a deck of cards, you have a a hard, healthy fat with it, whether that's olive oil you cooked with or what that looks like. And then yeah, like two cups of veggies with every meal.
0: Right.
1: And you can't go wrong with that. You're probably gonna cover your bases.
0: Nice. One of the things you you, you wrote me as well is like protein, like as an athlete, like the type when 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 you should have protein you know Mm -hmm. after training you know before you know what what what's what do you recommend for you know building mass and for the guys and whatever whatever their goals are just for over just overall health Mm -hmm. so
1: um no that's a great question because you see a lot of those guys like drinking a bro shake (laughs) (laughs) either during or after uh weight training at least i still see it and i was like how is this still a thing i'm not sure
0: i have it subconsciously built like in my head even you know after i lift weights and i'm like okay i gotta eat some protein because it was so many years of doing that Mm -hmm. that that's kind of in there so i want to hear your thoughts on that
1: (laughs) well yeah exactly it's just kind of um something that's become a pattern for for strength training athletes Mm and um so consuming protein prior to strength training won't help let's just say that but it won't hurt either and when you look at Robust studies, like peer-reviewed studies, they show that having um, protein 45 minutes before your training session can augment the uptake of amino acids Mm -hmm. to muscles um, to the same degree if you ate protein afterward. So that's for before a workout, right? But But the one thing that research is certain about is the recovery window after exercise. So what the golden rule of thumb is that I tell everyone as a dietitian, within 30 minutes of the end of your training session, whatever it might be, okay? And some people need protein more than others. I'm not talking about, I walked for an hour, I need protein within 30 minutes. If you walked, you don't need anything. But if you did something at moderate intensity or you were strength training, or you were like, you know, wrestling around on a mat or you went for a run that was like a 45 minute run. Yeah, you might think about this. So within 30 minutes of that training session, you wanna enjoy a three to one ratio of complex carbs to Mm -hmm. protein. And the three ratio is the carbs and the one ratio being protein. So mostly complex carbs with a little protein and as fat free as possible. That's the one finicky rule about fat when it comes to recovery. And the reason is this, fat slows down the release of everything else you ate with it into the blood. So fat's gonna slow digestion. Right, right. Fat takes a long time to digest. Yeah. Carbs are quick, protein is also slow. But that magical ratio, three to one ratio with mostly carb and some protein and no fat is what's been shown to rapidly replenish muscle glycogen. And it has to be done when the muscle is hungry for it, 30 minutes after. If you wait an hour, your ability to, um, resynthesize glycogen in the muscle drops in half. So if you wait an hour and a half, like you're like, Oh, just eat dinner, you know, tonight, your muscles are not even sensitive to, to, uh, the nutrients at that point, you got to do it within half an hour
0: yeah that makes that makes sense that's my instincts are right after i mean all the yeah. years you, you know like i gotta eat right after you lift lift weight or yeah training, training yeah. hard not so much you did too but especially after lifting weights yep i feel like i gotta eat you know within the next probably 30 minutes or so
1: I'm yeah
0: extremely hungry and you know
1: yeah there's an so, an so. enzyme that's really active during that time and that's the reason for it it's called glycogen synthase and it's just super sensitive to bringing all the sugar back into the cell so it can store it for the next day so -hmm. if you're someone that trains every single day you need to be thinking about glycogen replacement which means bring a snack with you to your training session so that you can consume it because the next day you'll be happy you did that so you have glycogen to to use right
0: nice to hear that from you like i know like bodybuilders have been doing this for years and I know my instincts of what I should be doing right after I, uh, I lift weights, but even after working out, after training like martial arts, it's through that, what I should, what I should be doing. eating, So uh, thank you for it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that. absolutely. No, you're pretty intuitive with that. And again, it's really about, you don't have to go and have, you know, 50 gram protein shake. Again, it should be mostly what you lost, which is carbohydrate from the glycogen store. So it has to be a little bit of carb, a little bit of protein, Can I give you an example of my favorite one that's super easy? Yes. Fat-free chocolate milk.
0: Fat-free chocolate milk. Yeah,
1: like it sounds like a seventh grade like kids' food. But honestly, that's one of the easiest things. And another thing you could do would be one slice of like low-carb bread with a piece of turkey in it. One slice, like it sounds so boring, but it's Whole Foods. Mm. You don't have to invest in these crazy supplements. Right. You can just have a slice of bread, like Ezekiel high protein low carb bread with a slice of turkey or sure. even add mustard that's um, fat free so those are easy things um have you heard of those chips called benitos
0: i think so yeah i think so they're
1: they're made from black and pinto beans mm. so they taste delicious they're high in starch and they've got that three to one ratio and they're not fat free but they're pretty close so you could eat like 10 like a big handful like 10 chips benitos and that's another super easy throw it in your gym bag eat it within 30 minutes and hydrate after workout. But those are some real life examples of like awesome. how, how you restore glycogen. Yeah. Awesome.
0: Love it. Love it. So I wanted to make sure I, we talk about your podcast and how that started for you. you
1: know,
0: oh, okay. Are you a dietitian, you know, Yeah. and how that, how that came alive and how that, why that, how that started,
1: you know, Alberto, I, had a, I, had uh, nice, I
0: had a nice post today that I read just on. Oh
1: the, Yeah. The,
0: yeah. Yeah,
1: that was um, from the heart what I said because I was thinking about it and um, I think we're all having to adapt in the COVID times and so for me the best way to adapt is to learn and grow because otherwise I feel like I'm laying down and passively dying. I can't just take this as it comes. Like there's too much change. know, yeah, There's been change in my workplace. I was furloughed for like two months. Mm-hmm. Um, all my colleagues moved on. I'm working alone at UCSF for the last couple months. It's been a lot of change personally and professionally. And I thought I feel best when I'm learning and being able to communicate that with other people. And it's not all about what we're talking about today, biohacking. It's just really about like, What are small nuggets of wisdom that you can give to people in sound bites that they can be like, oh, that's one thing I can do to like enhance whatever it is that we talked about today, right? You know, inflammation or burning more fat during my workout or, you know, having more well-rested sleep. So I thought I wanted to talk about an area that is really, I feel like a niche that people aren't talking about, which is research. What is research showing about ketogenic diets? Because everybody's latching onto it as a fad diet for for weight loss. But in truth, Alberto, there are so many incredible implications for disease reversal, like diabetes, heart disease, um, Nash, the NASH diet, like non-alcoholic fatty liver. Ketogenic diets are honestly, getting traction about disease prevention. And I'm so glad that that tide is turning because for me, I'm able to share that with people. So like, let me ask you a question. If you go through your Instagram feed and you see anything about keto, what is it that you're seeing? What are the images you see? Or what is the content about?
0: Like bro, bro, bros, you know, like a lot of, you know, you know, body, you know, lift, like, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, buff guys like just you know, bro science kind of stuff. You know, yeah. so that's mm-hmm. the the general consensus. Consensus I get. You know, um, yeah. Who did uh, you know? Big, bigger, stronger, faster. Was uh, you know, he was one of the first guys that that documentary. You know, and ta- he was he was he was one of the first people that talked about the keto. You know, the mm. keto diet, and uh, you know, more and more people are doing it. Um, but uh, so I'm always just I, I'm open to to you know ideas and and. I know that the fasting and, and then I know like a lot of um, people like the strong first. I know that some professionals, they, they do that diet and they've had great results with strength training and all kinds of performance things, you know, mm-hmm. so, uh, so that's what I've, that's what I've heard. If, I mean, if you look at Instagram, you know, <laughs> that's a tricky question, right?
1: But, well, uh, the, the reason I asked is no, I'm always curious how people um, associate the diet with, but what I, I can tell you what I saw what I was inundated with when I went to go look
0: Mm. is
1: sweets that are ketogenic. Oh, here's a way to make a pie, an ice cream, a brownie, a cookie, that's sugar free. And I'm like, or recipes, or you see weight loss transformations, but nobody's talking about the health benefits that you don't see on the outside that you can only measure internally with like labs or how you feel or your heart rate variability or recovery. All of those things are, they're things internal that a person feels on the inside, but you might not see on the outside. And so it's more than skin deep. And I felt like I was kind of just like sick of seeing all the propaganda for like these sweets. It's just like right. another way to give our body a sweet taste, even though there's no sugar. Right. I, I wanted to fill in a hole that I felt there was a need for, which is, giving people valid facts right. about the diet that, are, that are, extend well beyond losing body fat. And so how do you do that? You look at what science is telling us. And yeah, I just kind of felt like that was um, a niche that was missing uh, in the social, you know, social media scene. Um, I, I don't post recipes. I don't like tell you how to make something you know, with, without sugar. I wanna talk about what science is showing us and how that can benefit people's health in so many ways so yeah that's why i started it
0: cool yeah all that research and knowledge that you have to share with us i appreciate it i appreciate uh you doing that and then of course talking to me about all these things um and you know i look forward how many you just started it, right this this Mm -hmm. last these last few months
1: yeah i just launched it i think july 4th so this with you i'm like i said super humbled to be on your show and um just talking to you and uh I feel like this is only my fourth episode, but no, I'm, um, the more people that I meet in this space and the more people like you, like athletes that I'm exposed to, um, I'm hoping that this can grow out of that. Just hearing what people's questions are about it. Great. So, yeah.
0: Looking, looking forward to more knowledge and, and, and information (laughs) to help, to help, you know, to help myself of course, but help, help others as well. Yeah.
1: Thanks again. I appreciate it.
0: Making the time and, and, uh, Looking forward to being being in touch with you.
1: Absolutely, Alberto.
0: How can people find you?
1: Uh, people can find me on my website, um, which is not the shortest <laughs> website. <laughs> oh my God, I don't even know what it is by heart. <laughs> That's how bad it is. <laughs> so bad. I need to like email it to you. But um, they can find me easily on Instagram. My yeah. handle is The Keto Dietitian and the way it's spelled it is the underscore keto underscore dietitian.